Father, we invite you to speak to us as we look at your son's words about the future. We thank you for these words, and we pray that they would give comfort, direction, and strength to your children. May they challenge and draw anyone here who has not yet come to the cross to embrace him as their Lord and Savior, to prepare for the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a rumor about a tombstone in Indiana. I do not know if it's true about this tombstone in Indiana, but the, the rumor goes like this, that, that on this tombstone in a graveyard in Indiana, the, the person who died had this inscription. It said, pause, stranger, when you pass me by, as you are now, so once was I, as I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. Some unknown passerby allegedly came by and, and scratched something underneath that on the tombstone. He scratched this. He said, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> Why do I share that? I, I share that because we are about to encounter Jesus' words on prophecy about his second coming. And whether we think about the reality of our own mortality, that death is coming, or the reality that, that Jesus is coming, it, it leads us to that ultimate question. Am I prepared? What's in the future for me? Where am I headed? That's an important question. I also think about the fact that we're going to spend three weeks on Jesus' words in Mark 13 about prophecy, and I, and I think about some of the tendencies we have with prophecy. Some of us love prophecy just for speculation, right? But for Jesus, it was always very practical. It was always tied to how we live. In fact, when, when we go through this chapter, there are 19 imperatives. I mean, students who've been out of school for the summer, do you remember what an imperative is? It's a command. There are 19 commands in here. This is what's coming. Therefore, this is how we ought to live in light of it. I thought about that, and I thought about uh, th this past week. This was our kids, one of our kids' last weeks before school comes. And if you have kids like ours, you know that last week or two before school comes, they, they, they got a bucket list. Like elderly people who are facing down the Grim Reaper, sometimes they make a, a bucket list and they try to get all this stuff done before. It, it, except with kids, it's not the Grim Reaper, it's the teacher. We got just one or two weeks, we got to make the most of the rest of our summer. And we, we did some of that this week. We went down to the Great Wolf Lodge in Scottsdale. Any, any of you ever been there? Indoor water park, awesome time with kids. They had something there that made me think about prophecy, strangely enough. They have this ropes course, all these obstacles about 20 or 30 feet off the ground. And I noticed as the boys got on there, they had a harness up, and that harness was connected to a rail. And they follow that rail up to the top. And then as they're going across, that harness is doing a couple things. It's it's protecting them from falling, obviously, as they go across these little tiny circles. One of the things was a skateboard that went across a rope. One of them was a really narrow rope. So it was keeping them from falling. But it's also showing them the way to go. 
But I saw a couple times as they're going through that ropes course, they would get to a pole and to figure out whether to go this way around the pole or this way, you know what they did? They looked up at that harness track and then followed it around the pole the way they were supposed to go. I thought, you know what? Prophecy, biblically, for the believer is a lot like that. It protects us as we navigate our way through this world from, from falling into unfaithfulness. It also shows us the way to go as we prepare for the days ahead. So let's keep that in mind. Mark 13, verse 1. As he came out of the temple, this is Holy Week. People debate, was this Tuesday or Wednesday of Holy Week? I'm not sure which. It was Holy Week. They've been in the temple. Jesus has been having conversations. He's leaving. One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and, and what wonderful buildings. And they were not lying. They were not lying. Herod had remade the temple in Jerusalem into one of the ancient wonders of the world. Some of these stones were more than 30 feet in diameter. We're talking about white marble. Many of them gilded with gold. Ancient historians said some travelers as they came in, as the sun hit that gold and that, those white stones, it was almost like the sun shining in your face. It was something else. And one of the guys, I got my guess that it's Peter, I don't know, says, look, look at these. You can only imagine how surprised they were at Jesus' answer, looking at all this majesty around them. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. I imagine the guys just, did you, what, did you hear that? He's talking about the temple. It's going to be torn down? Verse 3 says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. Now, before we get into their question, they've walked away from the temple. Mount of Olives is close by. There's places on the Mount of Olives where you could climb up and look down on the temple. That's likely what they're doing. They're seeing the temple from above now. Living where we live, you, you've probably experienced that. If you've ever climbed Glassford Hill in Prescott Valley and looked down on the roof of Fry's or, or Coles or the Event Center or out in Prescott, you've gone up on Thumb Butte and looked down over the city. That's what they're doing. They're, they're looking down on Jerusalem, looking down on the temple, and they have a question. They ask, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, we need Matthew to help us here. When you're reading the Gospels, it's good to look at all the Gospels to get the full picture. Matthew helps us understand that they're actually asking not one question, but two questions. Matthew 24, 3, as Matthew records this, it says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? That's the first question. In other words, when is this temple going to be destroyed? That's the first question. Here's the second question. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When's the temple going to be destroyed, and when are you coming back, and when is the end of the age? It's two questions. To add to our challenge this morning, 
verses 1 to 23 in this chapter, which we're only getting to 13. But as Jesus answers, he kind of goes back and forth between the two, and there's some overlap. So that adds to our challenge, but we're going to do our best to, to understand what our Lord is saying here. One thing I want to point out is that God's foreknowledge ought to bring the believer comfort as we step into the unknown in the days ahead. We don't know, but he knows. And he's in control, and he's working all things together according to the purpose of his will. Why do I say that here? Because Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. Do you know when that happened? A.D. 70. The Romans came under General Titus and they raised it so completely that that none of the stones on the surface were left standing. All that remains, and you may know about this in Jerusalem, are some of the foundation stones down below, one of which is what? The Wailing Wall. But everything on the surface level was raised. Listen, the fact that Jesus knew that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were all written before A.D. 70. But Jesus knew because he's the Lord. Prophecy, God's foreknowledge gives us confidence. I was talking with one of our sons this week, and maybe you relate to him. I do. I have at different points in my life. I was talking to him, and he said, you know what? Even though he believed as a young boy, probably six or seven years old, he said, sometimes I don't feel like I'm really saved. Sometimes I have questions. I don't know if it's real. I said, I relate to that. I I go through those moments myself, and maybe you have. And one of the things I told him was, there's good news here. Your salvation is not based on your feelings. It's based on facts. And prophecy is one of those things. When you look through the Old Testament at all the prophecies about Jesus' first coming, his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and you see how specifically they were fulfilled, it confirms your faith, and it gives you confidence that when he predicts things about his second coming, those two are going to happen just the same way. So I think it's cool that Jesus predicted it before it happened, because he's God. But he was not the only one to predict the destruction of the temple. There was an Old Testament prophet who did. Do you know who? Spent some time with some carnivorous cats. Had interpreted a dream about a statue. Man, you guys are tough. (laughs) Daniel, yes. Thank you, Daniel. I want you to look at something. When you talk about prophecy confirming our faith, and maybe you're at a point where you wrestle with doubts about the faith. Watch this. Daniel chapter 9, something happened. He knew the Jews were getting near the end of their 70 years in Babylon, and he's crying out to God, repenting, asking for direction, and he got more than he bargained for. You know who showed up? The angel Gabriel. The angel Gabriel showed up to Daniel with a message about the future. Now, I want you to go with me. We're just going to scratch the surface on this. But you've got to put your thinking caps on, as they say, teachers. Put your thinking caps on. Daniel 9.25. Gabriel said to Daniel, You are to know 
and understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, so let's unpack this. The starting point, he says, you are to know and understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That went out in 444 or 445 B.C. from a Persian king who said, rebuild Jerusalem. That's when the clock starts. From the issuing of that decree to restore Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, who's that? Jesus. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven plus 62, how many weeks does that give us? 69, our math professor. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Now, most scholars believe this is not actual weeks like Sunday to Saturday. These are groups of seven, seven years. Okay, so 69 sevens. What is 69 times seven? How many years are we talking about from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince? Yes, 483, 483. Now, when you do the math and you understand that they're using prophetic years, which are 360 days, same as in Revelation, 483 years from 444 B.C. puts us, guess what, in what decade? The A.D. 30s. Know anything important that happened then? Having to do with Messiah, the Prince? He showed up on the scene on planet Earth. Now let's go on. He doesn't just prophesy Messiah the Prince would show up. Verse 26, Daniel hears from Gabriel that the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. What is that? The cross. The Messiah would be killed and have nothing, but he goes on. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So Daniel predicted that the Messiah would come, would be crucified, and that Jerusalem would be destroyed as it was in 70 AD. Do you know when Daniel lived? 620 to 538 BC. Skeptics don't like Daniel. Partially because he prophesied other things about the Greek empire before Jesus that were so specific. They said he couldn't have written that then. Surely he had to be written around 164 B.C. But I got news for the skeptics. Even if I give you that one, even though I don't agree with you, 164 B.C. is still a couple centuries plus before the Messiah showed up. What do you do with that? You see how I mean prophecy, God's foreknowledge gives us confidence that he's in control, working things toward his desired end. Now he's going to give his guys five of those imperatives with what's coming. He's saying, I want you guys to be ready. I see him like a shepherd looking at his guys, looking at us this morning. I want you to be ready. I want you to be ready. Think about a, a basketball coach at the end of the third quarter your team's winning, and, and how many of you know Christians, we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory, right? 
But when you're winning in a basketball game, what, what do you expect to happen from the other team in that fourth quarter? You expect to get fouled. You expect to get fouled. And Jesus is going to prepare them, and there are words of preparation for us as well. Listen, Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. That's the first one. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. We need to be people of the book. No longer can we live in such a way that we take the guy up front's word for it just because he said it. That we take the guy on the internet's word for it just because he said it. See that you are not led astray. Some of it's doctrinal. There are all kinds of lies about Jesus out there. But Jesus also told us to look for fruit. I want to give you a good fruit test for whoever you listen to. A friend of mine shared this on on Facebook, and it spoke to me because the world surely pulls a different direction. When you think about church leaders that you listen to, the church health is greater than church growth. Local ministry is greater than Christian celebrity. Godly character is greater than mad skills. Personal touch is greater than mega reach. Pastor's heart is greater than ministry brand. Strong souls are greater than filled seats. Formed disciples are greater than fickle crowds. Love is greater than success. Kind is greater than cool. Humble is greater than awesome. So as you consider who and what you're listening to, think about the doctrine, think about the fruit. See that no one leads you astray. Second, he says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, verse 7, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. What did he say? He said, When you see these things, do not be alarmed. Listen, I think it's really important if we are to be an effective witness as as we march towards the, the, the end of time, that the church is characterized that way as a group that is not alarmed because our Lord told us it was coming. And we need to be aware of what He's saying. Not every war, earthquake, and famine means it's here. I, I think about it like when you're pregnant and, and you go to that birth class, right? What's one of the first things they tell you? Like, hey, early on in your pregnancy, you're going to have these fake contractions called what? Braxton Hicks. You know about this, right? Yeah. You work with these people all the time. Don't, what do you tell them? Don't come running down here. Okay, it's not time yet. But he uses the analogy of birth pains, and it's a great one. He says, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. What happens with birth pains? They, they start out few and far between and not that strong, but as you get closer to the day, you get closer together, and they get more intense. It's a great analogy, and that's what's going to happen as we get closer and closer to the second coming of Jesus. 
birth pains also remind us that it's not all about the pain, right? It's leading to something. Just as, as guess what, Mary, it, it was not a silent night at the first coming of Jesus, okay? Despite all, I love that song. We've had three children. I promise you it was not a silent night. It was yelling and screaming. There were birth pains, and then came Jesus at the first coming. Guess what? The world is going to experience birth pains. But what it means is as they get closer and stronger is that his second coming is getting closer and closer. That's the, the hope of the believer. Do not be alarmed. Uh, another thing at Great Wolf Lodge, and you raised your hand, maybe you spent some time in the wave pool there. They have a pool that for part of the day it's calm, but then every so often it turns into this mash of waves. And you know what happens right before? Do you, do you remember? Yeah, it's a wolf howl. Oh! Oh! You hear that and you know the waves are coming. And never did I see anyone when the waves start running out. Mom, something's wrong with the pool. Get out. And I didn't see any parents grabbing their kids. Why? Because they knew what to expect based on the warning. Okay? That's what Jesus is telling us. Christians, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. Let my peace characterize you as you walk with me towards the end. He goes on, be on your guard. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Be on your guard. The guys he's talking to already experienced it in the book of Acts. Throughout church history, we have already seen this why do we find ourselves in those situations before governors and kings councils synagogues see what it says to bear witness before them you find yourself in that situation whether it's before the government or before someone at your workplace and you're asked to answer for your christian behavior to bear witness before them that's why you're there I think about one of the early church fathers. I'm going to paraphrase him really loosely. Tertullian. As he faced his persecutors, he basically said this, the more you mow us down, the more we multiply. And any of you who have a, a backyard with grass in it, you know what he's talking about. This year I made the mistake. Most years I put the bag on. If I got tired of dumping that bag into the garbage can. So this year I told Jaden, just mow it without the bag. So after a summer of mowing without the bag, guess what? You get one or two weeds over here, and then the blades shoot them all over the yard, and I've got a backyard full of weeds. You mow them down, and they multiply. Next year I'll use the bag again. It's happened throughout church history. In the face of the most intense persecution, the church has multiplied as they bear witness for the Lord. Be on your guard. Be ready. Verse 10, he says, The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And this is one of those prophetic facts that I think can turn into that speculation. Mere debate. Has it gone to all nations? Yes? No? Could he come in any moment? Yes? No? And that's an important discussion to have. But there's also another imperative in here. He says, The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. What's the imperative for believers? 
Listen, as long as you're here, and as long as I'm here, and as long as there are still unsaved people out there, or maybe next to us in here, we got a job to do. That, that's the imperative for us as his followers. It's not just a cool fact. Verse 11 is final. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. Do not be anxious beforehand, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. This is not an excuse for preachers to show up unprepared on Sunday. Okay, I, I heard a story about a, a Christian camp where there was a young guy working for the bishop of the camp, and the young guy was scheduled to preach, and he didn't have his notes, and he went to the bishop of the camp, and he said, i got to preach in five minutes, and I don't have my notes. What do I do? And the bishop looked at him and said, trust Jesus. And so the young man went up to the pulpit, and to his surprise, he found a 10-page manuscript up there, and he read through the whole thing. The place was responding in droves. God was working. He was excited until as he began to walk down, he saw the bishop coming up the aisle red-faced, and the bishop said to him, you used my message. <laughs> what do you think I'm supposed to do now? The young man looked at him and said, trust Jesus. <laughs> it's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about showing up here unprepared. Teachers of the word have a responsibility to prepare. What is it talking about? If you find yourself called before someone because you've been faithful to Jesus in your words or actions and they tell you to give answer for what you've done, I don't care if it's government or your boss or your neighbor or whoever, do not be anxious beforehand about what you're going to say. You pray, Lord, this is my opportunity to bear witness to you. Speak through me, Holy Spirit. And he's there with you to give you what you need to be a faithful witness in that moment. Verse 12. We learn the sad fact is not just governments and officials. Persecution will come from family to the faithful. Verse 12. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father is child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Some of you have tasted this on a micro level already. Family turning away from you. Rejecting you because of your walk with Jesus. Verse 13 is our memory verse for the month. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Do you hear the loving heart of our Savior Shepherd? Difficulty is coming. Be prepared for it. Lift up your eyes, weary soldiers. Every step you take is one step closer to the finish line. And the one who endures to the end will be saved. Listen, some of us read that and ask the question, does that mean I somehow, in my own power, and my own works, if I endure, that's how I earn my salvation? Is that what that means? No, if you know Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, you know salvation is by grace through faith. It is the gift of God through faith. What that does mean is that a true and faithful believer will be one who endures. 
to the end. In 1 John, he talks about those who go out from among us, those who go out from among the church. Why? Because they were never of us. There are such things as professing Christians in the church. True and faithful Christians will endure to the end. So what's next for the church? I believe it's the rapture where we meet Jesus in the air. And I want to talk to you about that reality for a moment. We're going to sit on some verses, and I want you to, to camp on this. This is our coming hope, whatever you're going through in this fallen world, okay? John 14, in the upper room, his guys were staring down the coming cross for their Savior. Disillusion. They, they thought he was going to bring the kingdom then and now on earth. What do we do now? John 14, 1, he answers him, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Paul talked about it in 1 Thessalonians 4. This church was freaking out because some of their believing brothers and sisters had died, and they're wondering, did they miss it all? They're, they died. What about for them? 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. Their, their bodies are sleeping in the grave. They're dead. Don't be uninformed so that you will not grieve, as indeed the rest of mankind do who have no hope. Believers grieve, but we grieve with hope. Why? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, it's all tied to that, so also God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Why did Paul share this with them? Why does it matter to us? Verse 18, he says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. There's, that's comfort. And you know this comfort firsthand if you've lost someone you love who knew the Lord. Carolyn's got a friend in her 30s that just finished a battle with stage 4 terminal brain cancer. There's two young children and a husband at home. Ashley knew the Lord. As her family went through that, they, they called and asked us to pray for peace. You say, how do you pray for peace at a time like that? It's because of the hope they have that they're going to see her once more. They're going to see her once more. When will the rapture happen? Now, i got to put a disclaimer on this. There are good people in the church world that have all kinds of different views on this. Before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, after the tribulation... And I'm not here to demean any of those camps so long as they arrived at their conclusion by studying God's Word. I am going to share with you what I believe based on God's Word. I believe that rapture will happen before the seven-year tribulation. 
And I'll share why. <laughs> I saw someone say good. <laughs> in Paul's passage in Thessalonians, did you catch that he said, we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. We. You, you hear that? He believed it could, could happen at any moment. We, including himself. He believed it could happen at any moment. I believe. James talks about it and the urgency of it. James 5, 7. James writes to the early church, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It is at hand. He says in verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Do you hear the urgency in what James is writing? Furthermore, I believe it's before the tribulation because the tribulation is a time of God pouring his wrath out on this planet. And if you know your Bible, especially Romans 8, you know that believers in Christ are not destined to experience the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. Paul writes to them how they are waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Rescues us from the, the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. He says, God has not destined us for wrath. And that's in a chapter where he's talking specifically about last days. Now those who believe in a mid-trib rapture, they say that God's wrath is only really poured out in the second half of the tribulation. At that three and a half year mark, that's when God's wrath begins. Before that, it's all Satan's wrath or the wrath of man. I don't agree with that because even early on in the tribulation, the seals... Who was it that opened those seals? There was only one who was worthy. Jesus, the Lamb, opened those seals. And early on, even in Revelation 6, men were aware that the wrath of God was being poured out. Revelation 6.15, the kings of the earth and the eminent people and the commanders and the wealthy and the strong, every slave and free person hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, listen to this, fall on us and hide us from the sight of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Now others say, well, some of the Christians are going to be raptured first, but, but not all of them. I got it. Problem with that one, too, out of 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about the, the rapture, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, he says, Behold, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all, catch that word, all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. It says all, 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 all. 
I've got to tell you, for a, for a while, I believed that it was possible that we would be here during the tribulation. I still confess that being a human, it could be the case. But the more and more I study the Bible, I lean towards before the tribulation. I, I used to think, hey, maybe we'll be here, but God will protect us through the tribulation, kind of like he protected the Israelites in Egypt when all the plagues were coming on the Egyptians, but, but Israel wasn't affected by some of them, you remember? But I've steered away from that because of what Jesus said in Revelation 3, verse 10, to the church of Philadelphia. And that was not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It was an actual church in the Middle East. But I believe, as many do, that these churches represent the church. There's lessons for us. Listen to what he said to them. Revelation 3.10, Because you have kept my word of perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of the testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Do you notice that he didn't just say, I will keep you from the testing? He said, I will keep you from the hour of the testing. The hour of the testing. Not to mention, if you ever study the book of Revelation, I read this week, that you'll find the words for church in the early chapters, one through three. Church, body of Christ, bride. And you'll find them at the end, Revelation 22. But in between, as you go through all the tribulation, you will not find those words. You will find the word saint and elect. But I believe along with many others, those are those who are saved during that period, not the church today. Bottom line, look. Whenever the rapture happens, pre, mid, post, We'd be fools to expect to escape trials in this world. Okay, John 16, 33, Jesus told his guys in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So his words to his guys on this day in Jerusalem are also applicable to us. I'm going to say them again in bullet form. One last huddle here before we break. See that no one leads you astray. See to it. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over. Do not be anxious beforehand about what to say. The Holy Spirit is with you. He will speak. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, he said, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When I think about the fact that you know, I believe he could rapture us at any moment that trumpet could sound, I'm reminded of a, a service in Ohio that Carolyn told me about. They were preaching about this and they had someone in the back with a trumpet. <laughs> I won't do that to you today. But I'll tell you, that brought it home. <laughs> We're going to fly. Are we ready? I think about flying. We, one other cool thing we did in Phoenix, there's a place down there Gary told us about called I Fly. It's an indoor skydiving place. Indoor skydiving, of all things, there's this tube in the middle of the room, 
And there's a net where the, the people stand, and underneath that net, there's a giant blower vent that blows air 100 miles an hour. We got tickets for Jaden and Evan. I didn't go in. We got tickets to watch them. They, they stepped in there, but before they stepped in, you know what those instructors told them? You got to be ready. When you, when you step in that room, you hold your hands like this, and you hold your legs like this, and, and with the instructor, up they went. Just They got a taste of flying, but they had to prepare. How, how do we prepare? When we think about the fact that one day we're going to fly, we're going to be with Jesus. John tells us in 1 John 3, says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We say, if I'm going to be made like him one day, I want to start cooperating with that process right now. Today we talked about God's foreknowledge, how it gives the believer confidence and direction as we walk forward. Next week we're going to talk about God's faithfulness to Israel. He has not, nor will he ever break one of his unconditional promises to Israel. That gives us confidence as the church that he will not break one of his unconditional promises to us as well. Two weeks from now, we'll talk about the physical return in his kingdom on this earth and beyond and the hope that brings us. But all of this, as we think about the end, whether it's his coming or our death, drives us to that question we started with. Am I ready? Am I ready? In that upper room when Jesus told his guys, I'll, I'll come and take you where I am. Verse 4, he said, you know the way to where I'm going. You remember what Thomas said? Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Love that guy. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As you think about death, as you think about his coming, you do not have to face it with fear. I'm mindful of a story Tony Evans wrote about a, a dad in his vehicle with his boy, and there was a bee flying around in the, the vehicle, and the boy's freaking out, trying to get down, get away from it, and, and he's just bouncing around the back seat, and the dad reaches out, grabs it, drops it, and the bee's flopping around again, and and the little boy starts freaking out again, and the dad shows him his hand. He says, son, you don't have to worry anymore. I took care of it. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that in Jesus, the risen Lord, the sting of death has been removed for all who turn to him. Are you ready? Have you received his gift? Last story. True story about a man on his deathbed had three sons nearby. As he approached his, his final moments and began to breathe his last, he looked at the first son and he said, good night, son. He looked at the second son. He said, good night, son. He looked at the third son and said, goodbye, son. And the third son said, dad, why did you say good night to them but goodbye to me? He said, because they have placed their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and you have not.
you please come to the cross? Lord, thank you for your words. I thank you for your omniscience. We are so not omniscient. We are so finite and, and we get easily confused and we fret easily when we look around. But you are enthroned above the flood and you are gracious enough to give us your words to hold on to. Help us to take them today, to, to be on guard, to see that we're not led astray, to not be anxious about what to say, but rely on the Holy Spirit within. By your power, may we endure faithfully to the end, be a witness before those favorable and unfavorable. For your name's sake, it is all about you. And we thank you when we think about birth pains, that it doesn't end with the pain. It leads to your coming, the coming of our Lord and Savior and glory. You are our hope. Give us strength to persevere to the end. Father, I pray even as we take our offering this morning, it would come from faithful hearts, sold out to you, committed to what you want to do in our lives. Thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.